0: 9th of March. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thankful this morning for Ryan Mitchell running the boards. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, where in the word are you today? I am in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I want you to pause right there for just a moment. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, you say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, God is great and almighty and everlasting. Today is his. We are his. This is the year of the Lord. Let us live it in his sight and by his grace. We're going to turn our attention now to what is going on in Washington. We've got all kinds of headlines to cover with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University on, well, all things political. Welcome back, sir.
1: Hey, Carmen. How you doing?
0: I am. I am well. I am well. Thank you so much. I hope you trust you are well, too.
1: Yeah, we're doing well. I'm glad okay. the weather is starting to turn and spring is springing and things are turning on the pandemic. So it's all good here at Cedarville.
0: Amen. Amen. Um, Let's talk about um, what is going on in the Supreme Court. I understand that the Supreme Court has revived a religious speech case out of Georgia uh, in relationship to a former student. What's happening there?
1: Yeah, revived is the right word. Uh, The case is uh, about free speech rights at Georgia Gwinnett College, and it had been dismissed at lower levels because the college had changed their policies. Um, It involves this gentleman, Chike Uzbegbanam, who is prevented from sharing his faith and from handing out uh, evangelical literature on campus. And he was told that he could do it in a particular free speech zone. And this is pretty popular at a lot of colleges where they sort of define and corral speech to very particular parts of campus. Uh, Well, he decided to comply with it. And he said, okay, I'll do this, I'll do that. I'll hand out my things here, here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, And he was stopped again, uh, believe it or not, from doing what he was trying to accomplish. Uh, And so he brings a lawsuit and Georgia Gwinnett College pushes back. Uh, They didn't want to revise their policies. There's a back and forth between uh, Uzbekmanam's attorneys and Georgia Gwinnett College. And eventually the school says, okay, fine, we'll alter our policies and let you share your faith uh, across most of the campus. Uh, without any kind of restriction. Well, the case is really about whether or not the case can move forward from that point on. Uh, The college is saying, you know, we've changed our policies, therefore the case should be done. It should be tossed out at this point. And Uzbekmanam's lawyers are basically saying, you know, we want to send a message. Uh, There's still damages here. Our client has suffered because of this process. And for this case to be thrown out just because they changed their policies at the last minute, uh, doesn't send the right message. And so the case made it to the Supreme Court yesterday, and the court decided that it could move forward and the university could still be sued and damages could be recovered, even if they're minimal damages, uh, because of the nature of the constitutional deprivation at work here. So I think an important ruling for uh, for religious liberty and also for this idea of standing and mootness in front of
0: the court. That's the part that I think um, is maybe most helpful in the ongoing conversations that are happening across the country. I mean, because, you know, it's not as if institutions feel like, well, you know, we can get away with it because, you know, in the end, we can just change our policies at the last minute and um, and we won't have to endure the expense nor, you know, nor the public scrutiny of, of this kind of, of trial. And I think the court is saying, you know what, let's, um let's, Let's deal with this. Let's deal with it uh, on the face of it. And I appreciate that. I just I appreciate that. Talk with us about uh, President Biden's executive order yesterday establishing a gender policy council. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, in some ways, this seems kind of perfectly predictable, right? I mean, it sounds kind of like what we might expect out of the Biden administration. Uh, But this creates a a group within the White House that's really a callback to the Obama administration that had a similar group. But note the difference in names. So uh, President Biden's group is called the Gender Policy Council. President Obama's group was called the White House Council on Women and Girls. Mm. And those two titles show you the amount of change and transition that's taken place within the Democratic Party as it relates to these issues in this very short period of time. Uh, The White House came out and said – yeah, we've named it differently because we want to be more inclusive as it relates to this idea of gender. And so it isn't simply about women and girls now. It's about this broader conception of what gender might be. And I think that's remarkable. Uh, it shows you how quickly things have changed. But uh, the group really is is sort of uh, they're going to be sort of a filter for policies that, that affect gender. Uh, they will have uh, the president's ear. Uh, the co-chair of the group is a special assistant to the president. And so she'll be able to comment to the president as it relates to policies uh, that involve gender. I I wouldn't say the group has a lot of power necessarily, uh, but it is probably a significant political move. uh, And it's one that I think certainly is the Biden administration's effort to reach out to the LGBTQ uh, plus community.
0: Uh, so I tried to um, raise people's attention a couple of weeks ago to another name change in a White House office, and uh, nobody seemed to care much. And I totally, like, get it now. So that one, in the Obama White House, there was the, office, uh, the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, and then it was called the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Well, in the, uh, in the Biden administration, um, faith-based is gone and it's just now the Office of Neighborhood Partnerships and, and shorten shortened form is just called the partnerships office. Um and those who want to engage with the uh with the office that is supposed to be engaging with faith based groups now um has been instructed to just refer to it as the partnerships office. So I, I think that words matter and I think the way that we refer to things matter and we should watch the evolution of those words um when they are used at the highest level. Um, All right, so let's deal, I think we can dispense with what's in the $1.9 trillion COVID package that has now uh, passed the Senate, returns to the House for a final vote, I think tomorrow. There were attempts by some pro-life senators to amend the package to include the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment apparently has been included in every other package, but it's not included in this one. Why is that significant?
1: Well, the Hyde Amendment uh, goes back uh, to 1976. It's named for Henry Hyde, who was a Republican member of Congress from Illinois. And it was an effort to bar the federal government from spending taxpayer dollars on providing abortion services. Um, And the Hyde Amendment has been largely, you know, it's been a sticking point here and there, uh, but it's largely been passed routinely by Congress is just sort of this effort to to wall off at least some taxpayer dollars. Uh, Well, the the act that you're referring to, the America Rescue Plan, uh, has funding for family planning, and it has funding for state and local governments uh, to to fill budget gaps and other things like that. And efforts to put this Hyde Amendment language into the bill so that we could explicitly prevent that money from going to provide abortions, uh, those efforts failed uh, repeatedly. And so as of right now, it looks like this bill is going to move forward. We'll see this massive amount of federal spending uh, and honestly, very little of it targeted to COVID directly uh, that can now be used potentially to pay for abortions. And so it's a significant moment, I think. And I think, again, uh, it reflects how far the progressive movement has come uh, on the abortion question, even in a relatively few short years.
0: Yeah, I think this is a topic we're going to be circling back around to. Um, it's very significant. I was noting that even, um, you know, e- even Democrats who also, uh, you know, profess to be, I mean, there's actually an organization, Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden, who issued a an open letter on the American Recovery Act, you know, saying how disappointed they are. Um, they can't be very surprised, though. I mean, I, I, they can't be surprised.
1: No, I don't. I don't. I don't see how they can be all that surprised about it. I mean, this just sort of fits in with what we've seen uh, in the past several years with the legislation from that party relating to life issues becoming more and more, I think, radical, honestly, and potentially even out of step with the American public.
0: All right. There's a couple more headlines I'd like to talk with you about. I'm talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We've got to take a very brief break and then we'll be right back. Conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Mark, a couple of things going on in, uh, in D.C. and in political headlines um, that might be, you know, I, I might refer to these as sort of like more general um, subject matter areas. We have five Republican senators who have now announced that they're not going to run for reelection next November. Um, you know, are they kind of all from one ideological side of the spectrum in terms of when we think about GOP lawmakers Uh, It looks to me like these are sort of more traditional Republicans. Um, The latest one uh, that I just heard about last night would be Roy Blunt. But I think Chuck Grassley is also, you know, thinking probably about his future. Um, And then we have the conversation about the filibuster. So can we talk about those two sort of general topics um, as well this morning?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think the announcement from uh, Mr. Blunt is uh, is significant. And as you said, it kind of is part of a trend that we're looking at here uh, with Republican senators. So far, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think any Democratic senator has announced that they will not be seeking reelection for 2022, uh, whereas we have a handful of Republicans now who have saying that that's the case. And I think you're right. I think these tend to be uh, obviously older members of the Republican Party, a bit more establishment oriented Uh, Some of them more moderate, you know, a little bit more moderate, at least someone like Rob Portman from uh, our state here in Ohio. Uh, But some of them also very conservative, like Pat Toomey uh, and even Roy Blunt himself. And so but I do think you're right. They're a little bit more establishment figures. And so uh, I think this is just another uh, act in the play that we're watching run out right now when it comes to who's controlling the Republican Party. Uh, I think there's a significant fear uh, in a lot of these instances of be, of losing, of being primaried and losing elections uh, because of their connection to what's going on within the GOP. Um, someone like Rob Portman, for instance, in, here in Ohio, he's not that old compared to uh, many other senators. He could certainly serve another term, it seems, uh, but he's choosing not to. And so there's also, I think, another issue at work here, which we keep hearing about in Congress, that many members of Congress are frustrated because they feel like there's just not much work to be done legislatively. Um, The leadership is taking on more and more role as it comes to creating legislation. They hammer out a compromise with the other party or with the White House, and the members are just simply presented with a bill and said, hey, here you go, you're going to either vote it up or vote it down. If you vote it down, we're going to come after you. So uh, I think many of them are frustrated because they feel like they're just not really doing what they thought they would be doing in Washington, D.C.,
0: you know, we look at, uh, you know, potentially a handful of of Senate retirements this time around um, in terms of the GOP. But I, I'm just thinking of my own state of Tennessee. Uh, Lamar Alexander retired um, in 2021, replaced by, uh, you know, a freshman senator who I would describe as um, fairly Trumpian. And Bob Corker just retired in 2019, um, you know, succeeded by Marsha Blackburn. Right. And I just think about just my own state and how, uh, you know, the the movement at that level um, just in the last couple of years. And I think that, you know, what I'm what I'm seeing nationwide is, you know, is is more of that, is more of that. So I just thought that I would uh, see whether or not you if, if I was seeing something that maybe you were seeing, too. So I appreciate that. Let's talk about the filibuster. Remind people what the filibuster is and why the filibuster is in the news.
1: So the filibuster uh, is this provision within the United States Senate uh, that allows any member of the Senate to have unlimited debate if they choose to take on unlimited debate. And so a member of the Senate can stand up and talk about a bill for as long as they wish to. Um, And in order to cut off the filibuster, uh, you need to have 60 votes in the Senate. And so in some ways, unless you want to go through a long protracted process, uh, it really takes 60 votes to pass substantive legislation in the United States Senate. And uh, again, you can say, I'm going to filibuster and everyone's just going to sit on their hands and wait for it to end, and they could vote, but senators generally don't want to do that. And so the 60-vote threshold uh, is a significant barrier to getting things done. And I think right now we're seeing progressives in the United States Senate and the Democratic Party, uh, they're angling to abolish the filibuster and to turn the Senate into Uh, more of a straightforward majority rules kind of body, more like the House of Representatives. Uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have both said that they're opposed generally to getting rid of the filibuster, and so it seems like uh, it might not happen. Uh, But even Joe Manchin is now whispering that there are reforms he would consider potentially to it. And so uh, this would be a significant change. It would be be a change in the culture of the Senate, and I think it would have serious long-term effects.
0: Oh, all right. We don't have time to cover this. Well, I don't think. Cover this uh, story um, about, uh, about a church, a church property. Well, maybe we do. Let's try it. Um, there's been a church property sale. This happens all the time, right? Churches close, thousands of them every year, and their properties are sold. And this one story highlights what can happen, not just on that physical piece of property, but obviously in the surrounding community, When the church building is sold from a Christian congregation to, let's just say, in this case, a white supremacist group. I I think that my conversation that I really want to have is how does the political landscape um, affect communities across the country, especially when what is historically a Christian um, expression in, in a church is exchanged for an expressly non Christian expression?
1: Yeah, in this particular case, it's a small community uh, with relatively few people and to have this particular organization moving in, this Asa true folk, sort of a Nordic pagan based uh, faith system, if you want to call it that, which is really in some ways just white supremacy in a garb. um, It's such a small community that this has ripple effects significantly. Uh, The community also is diverse, a significant number of African-Americans and the community and they feel uh, threatened to some degree by the presence of this organization. And so I think you're right. The political landscape is so uh, tough right now. And unfortunately it looks like white supremacy is ascendant to some extent. I think we can overplay this sometimes and we might look for any example and kind of call it a trend. uh, But it certainly seems like we hear more of these kinds of stories in the last several years uh, than we have previously. And I, I think it's significant. And certainly it's gonna have an effect on a small community.
0: Yeah. So let's be let's be not only praying for communities like this, but let's be um going to church, getting, getting, getting engaged in local congregations. Come alongside those that um that are failing in your community and and see how you could be an agent of um helping to reinvigorate them. Like right, we want to see the body of Christ flourish in all of its expressions, not just in you know in mega churches or online uh, ways of congregating, we want to see the local church flourish, and so how how might you reinvest in a local congregation in your own community maybe it 's not even the one that you 're a member of, but recognizing that as the body of Christ flourishes in all of its many expressions and parts, uh, the city is blessed. the place you live is blessed, and when those local outposts of christian um, of the Christian kingdom are closed up, uh, other things will come and fill that space. And so let's be the people who help the church flourish in the world today. Mark, thank you as always so much. That's Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We love talking with you. Appreciate you being with us today.
1: Thanks, Carmen. You take care.
0: You too. We'll be right back. Okay, let me just go ahead and acknowledge that the church used to be recognized as a force for good, but that has changed very rapidly. And Christians are often now seen as the bad guys. We have lost respect for good reason in the culture, we have lost influence as well. Uh, And so, how do we continue to be people who advocate and advance good when the entire culture we're in sees us as the bad guys? Well, you learn to be the best bad guy you can be. That's right. All right. So Stephen McAlpin is joining me next. He is the author of Being the Bad Guys. This is actually something he knows quite a bit about. He's going to actually speak to us from what I describe as the cultural future from Perth, Australia. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: I once heard my friend Jim Burns say listening is the language of love. I couldn't agree more. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you have a teen who's struggling, it's likely you've given him some advice or even explained the right direction to go. But if he's like the teens I've met, he isn't really paying attention to you. Am I describing your son or daughter? Mom, Dad... I know you have good intentions, but you need to figure out how to communicate your love in a different way. Love your team by listening. It won't be easy, and you may hear some things that you don't like, but by sitting down and opening your ears, you'll say more to your son or daughter than you ever dreamed. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Again, parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: culture that sees us now as the bad guys. How do we live for Jesus in the midst of a culture that says we shouldn't? The book is Being the Bad Guys. Stephen McAlpin joins me now. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Great to be with you, Carmen.
0: All right. So um, tell us where you are in the world today and what it looks like out a window if you were to be able to look out a window right now.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I can't say good morning to you other than for you because it's uh, about 20 to 9 at night here in uh, Perth, in Western Australia. So, west coast of Australia, right down the bottom, and it's uh, dark, I guess, uh, and it's still very warm. It'd still be, I don't know, what temperature. Uh, In in Fahrenheit, it be, but it was a shorts and t shirt and hat day. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) That is awesome. That is it's such you know. Every time I have a conversation with someone who you know literally lives half a world away, I'm just reminded of not only how big the world is, but also how small it is. I'm grateful for technology and the ability to communicate with you now. I'm also just extraordinarily grateful to be your sister in Christ. To acknowledge that we're going to spend all of eternity together in the kingdom of heaven, and that we have the privilege of advancing those kingdom principles now in the midst of this generation um, that we, you know, that we live in the midst of. So um, thank you for joining us today. Tell us, um, what is the lived experience or the contemporary reality that you're trying to address in the book, Being the Bad Guys?
2: I think it's that feeling that Christians have got that suddenly they're no longer the people who might be the solution to the problems that the culture has, even though they might be the sort of the do-gooder solutions, to a position where they're seen as maybe where they do badder. And somehow what we're saying about how we live ethically, especially in the areas of sex and gender and all those things that are at the forefront – are not only uh, dinosaur ideas, but they're dangerous ideas. And I think Christians have thought, how, how has that happened? How have I become the bad guy in the office place when I hold to what seemed to be a normal uh, sexual ethic around Christianity? How's that seen as part of the problem? And I'm finding as a pastor and as someone who works in this area of culture that Christians are now starting to say, what do we do about that? How do we move forward?
0: And so um, I want to talk, I want to back up and ask, you know, how did Christians become the bad guys? I want to talk about um, this cultural change. But let's do a little bit of the positive part first, because you do view this really as an opportunity for God's people. And one of the things that I love that you're doing is, um, you know, for people who are like sort of doing a bulk order of these, you're actually offering like a free hour-long call with you to talk about their specific ministry context. I just think that is so cool. And that says you don't just have a heart, you know, for the book. You have a heart for the people who are going to read the book and the places where um, this is going to be applied. So that's just so cool, and I just wanted to compliment you on that.
2: Oh, yeah, thanks. Look, that to me, that was a critical part of it. I suggested it to uh, the, the publisher because I, I've been a pastor for so long, and I'm realizing that I'm sending people out on Monday morning to engage in a world that— uh, is probably harder to deal with than my world if I'm working in pastoral ministry. It used to be that you'd go into pastoral ministry and that was taking a hit for the team. And now it feels like sending you to Babylon on Monday morning in the uh, the law firm <laughs> is taking a hit for the team. So I said, let's do that because every situation is slightly different. There'll be enough commonality, but people are coming with different questions. And yeah, hey, as you said, technology and uh, has, has helped. And, uh, if you haven't done a thousand zoom calls in the last year, you're probably not alive because <laughs> it seems to be that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it does feel to some people like the hostility is sudden. Um, mm. I, that is not my personal experience because I've been in environments where I have felt the temperature of the water rising for most of my life. So, um, and, and I described when we talked to, uh, Friends and colleagues from uh, Europe, and we talk to friends and colleagues even from Canada, certainly from Australia. I remind North, Amer- like, well, American Christians, like we're talking to our brothers and sisters from the future. Like you guys are already further along um, the the post Christian path than we are, and so speak to us from the future here, because this feels like sudden hostility, but it's not sudden.
2: Yeah, you stole my line. I say it to all the, all the time when I do speak to people in the U.S. that I'm coming to you from the future, what your future okay, well, is going to Well, there's
0: be. a guy in Vancouver that yeah. maybe stole your line first.
2: all oh, right oh, I know, so I'm going to have to look that up for you. Maybe it's Mark <laughs> Clark. Anyway, I'll think yeah. about that. I'm sure it's nothing original but in uh, me. But yeah, for me it was the same, that it hasn't happened overnight and obviously as I mentioned in the book, there's, there's things that come out of the Enlightenment, the Romantic movement of you know the earlier centuries where the individual is pushed to the fore as the centre and locus of uh, what life's about. But I guess that it ramped up in the sexual revolution with uh, where do you find your locus of identity and how do you liberate yourself the mo- and be the most autonomous person you can. Now, I went to university in the 80s, so I recognized even in Australia, which was a little bit more laissez-faire and sort of uh, lazy secularism, that there was a hard secularism coming towards the Christian framework from critical theory, from all those things. And I thought, would these ideas ever fly in the culture? Well, I should have thought they would because I was doing communications and cultural studies, and everyone who's my age now in their mid-50s went into the arts and culture where the stories are told, and where they are presented to our culture, and suddenly you 're getting this hostility coming through and it hasn't it would feel sudden, but as we 're saying it 's been a slow burn through the centuries and now I think the key issue for me was that the Gospel of Jesus is being seen as a an impediment to this other gospel I think it 's a gospel. Uh, tussle It's a, a tussle between the gospel of Christ and the gospel of a good news that once I was blind, but now I see. It's the same language being used to describe very different uh, points of direction. And I think that's what's happened. that That whole rise... Uh, over the last couple of centuries of uh, where is the locus of our meaning, who is in charge of who I am, has flowered in the last 60 years through the sexual revolution. And then that sexual revolution has said your primary locus of identity is in your sexuality because it's the deepest part of you. And obviously we don't, you know, I don't hold to that narrative, but it's a very strong narrative and it's Disney, Netflix, whatever you want to call, will layer that on thick.
0: Okay, if you're listening um, to us right now and you're saying to yourself, I need that, like I need being the bad guys. I have woken up to the reality that I thought I was a good guy and I'm characterized as a bad guy. I don't really know how um, to live that out. I don't know. I really don't know how to be a Jesus person. in in the contemporary context that I find myself in, we're giving copies of the book away today. Um, So thankful to our friends at The Good Book Company for the copies we have in studio to give away today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, uh, text the word book to 877-933-2484. For those of you who remember the conversation that I had with Carl Truman, about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I told you there were words in that book I had to look up because it's like deeply philosophical. It's really, really good, but it's deeply philosophical. This is the same book. It's just written in a way that is really easy to understand, apprehend, and apply immediately. So if you thought to yourself, Oh, that um, that sort of analysis that Truman did of our curtr- uh, current cultural reality was really, really helpful, but I don't want to have to look up words when I'm reading a book. This is your book. This is uh, be- being um, being the bad guys is immediately applicable, easy to understand, and great for um, helping to equip us as Christians in the cultural context in which we actually live Today. Tons of resources related to the book at the good, the good book.co.uk, which I know is a lot um, to remember. But um, if you want more resources to download, I can get those to you as well. Stephen McAlpin and I will continue our conversation about being the bad guys in just a moment. But in the meantime, text the word book to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four to enter the drawing for the copies we have to give away today. We'll be right back. All right. I'm continuing my conversation with Stephen McAlpin. He is a pastor. He's an author. Uh, he's a church planter. Being the Bad Guys is the book we're talking about today. You can find him at Stephen McAlpin, M-C-A-L-P-I-N-E, like alpine, but like a Scottish alpine, com. And Stephen is a P-H, Stephen, not a V. So Stephen with a P-H, Mick. Like he's Scottish, Alpine, like he's skiing. dot com, dot com. How'd I do, Stephen? Describing how to the spell most creative
2: your name one. the most creative get... way, because you would be surprised how many people get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Getting people to you, man. Okay, so um, let's uh, let's continue this. I think that one of the things I've heard you say is that we have a lot of, like, self-censoring that goes on as Christians mm-hmm. today just because we're trying to – you know, we're trying to keep the peace. We're trying – I really don't want my Thanksgiving table to just turn into, a like, a political food fight, um, a, you know, a, a, a throwdown. So a lot of Christians are self-censoring today, but that is – you know, sort of putting my light under a basket. And that's not what I'm called to do as a Christian either. Can you address a little bit of that?
2: Well, look, I think that's a big tension because I think for the last 20 years, it's been how can you be the water cooler Christian and the churches have equipped you to have those conversations. And then you're in a workplace, which even the HR departments have social agendas that you have to be very careful how you tread through. And I think part of the issue with the sexuality issue is it becomes the shibboleth. You know what I mean by that—that that it's the mm-hmm. point at which you're no longer regarded as, you know, friendly. As friendly, you are trouble. And I think Christians are saying, "How do I navigate that space?" When the first thing that people aren't going to ask me is, "Did you believe dinosaurs existed?" But do you think that same-sex marriage is okay? It's a, the testing ground—is the sexuality debate. And I think Christians have to say. Look, I'm going to have to lean into that a little bit. I'm going to have to explain myself, but it is going to be a little bit more costly than it was in the past, not with everyone, but uh, with some. But you'd, you'd be hoping that somehow you're not going in day one at your workplace saying, well, I'm going to wave around my copy of being the bad guy. And sort of you've built into yourself in your workplace some credibility as to who you are and how you function so that if people say, how could that person hold that, you know, tra- you know, that view that is so transgressive now, they might pause and think and say, well, hang on, if they are like that in the rest of their life in, in a way that I think is good, there's something about what they're saying here I don't get. Maybe I need to ask some more questions. But I think it's a, it's a difficult task and it needs the whole church to support Christians in the workplace to do that. I think that you can't. it's harder to be a lone ranger because you feel like you're, you've got a target on your back these days in the workplace.
0: We spend a lot of time, um, I mean, a lot of people who are listening right now spend a lot of time in environments that, you know, we would not consider faith-friendly. Um, some of them are expressly faith-unfriendly. And I think that this approach of of the credibility that I earn um, over the course of time is really, really significant. Uh, I know that, you know, that you um, you mentor Christians... Uh, across Australia. Talk a little bit about the context of of that. Um, what's going on at City Bible Forum? What is Third Space? Like, tell us a little bit about what's going on with you.
2: Well, City Bible Forum was set up to help evangelize uh, city workers through just long-term relationships by other Christians in the workplace. And so what they've noticed as they're doing this is that even though the Christian framework in the social media is seen as, uh, you know, it's beyond the pale. Uh, the average person in the workplace doesn't necessarily feel like that, and it, they they will sidle up to people and say, look you're a Christian, I've got a question about this. What do you think? And City Bible Forum has pitched itself deliberately to be the kind of place where Christians can be supported in that environment in that network and become the kind of people who could be the go-to person if there's someone asking a question about something. A mm-hmm. third space itself is a sort of plug and play for City Bible Forum, which is saying, how can we help Christians in any setting, and that's university or work or whatever at home, um, find the the third spaces, the, the neutral territories to have conversations because it does feel, as you say before, Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever day it is, it feels like it's going to be a bun fight and you, it just feels like the ground where you can have a common conversation has shrunk, a bit like you're clinging to this shrinking iceberg and a polar bear clinging to this little bit of land where you can have a positive conversation. So what I wanted to do uh, with where I work and what I write is to say how much, how can we create as much good space as possible to have conversations that matter about Jesus. And a colleague there has written another book, How Not To Be That Guy, which sounds a little bit against what I'm writing, but Mm -hmm. we we write the same way, (laughs) because we all know that guy, and we don't want to be that guy who everyone kind of avoids. But we want to be the kind of person that is what I call repellently attractive in what they're saying, that people go, that can't be right, because I know that's not true about how sexual ethics works. But that person seems to have life a bit more together and some answers about life more than i do and that 's going to be intriguing to them
0: all right how not to be that guy all right i'm not, i'm writing that down that sounds intriguing um so is that is that a book on how to talk about jesus
2: yes it's exactly yeah. that how not it's uh, in one sense it's the uh, not the flip side of what i 'm saying it's saying how do you go into the workplace exactly the same way without being the uh, the grumpy Christian, because what I don't want in what, what I was writing and what my friend who wrote this book, Sam Chan, said, we don't of going in as if we're, we're just that cultural warrior all the time that wants to shoot down everything about everything. There's enough of that. I think we can hold to our convictions clearly uh, and do so being happy warriors, so to speak, uh, rather than sort of grumpy all the time. Uh, it's going to be a challenge i don't think it's i'm under no illusions because the way so, social policies in workplaces go it can take you down and i do want people to be prepared for that that uh, we are not promised uh, a, an elevator ride to a happy future in this age we're promised joy in the midst of struggle and i think to fall back into to that and to realize that Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, they must die to themselves. And anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. That's not in the fine print of the Bible. That's up front and center.
0: Yeah, and that's actually really one of the, I, I think, critical things that you deal with in the book. Like, wh- why are we so surprised? Um, and, and sort of how to deal uh, how to deal with that. All right, there is so much really great stuff in being the bad guys. You're going to want to check out everything that Stephen McAlpin is doing. And so let me uh, let me remind you again, you can visit him online at StephenMcAlpin.com. The book is Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says We Shouldn't. Um, and we are giving away copies today from our friends at The Good Book Company. So go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Stephen, thank you for staying up late and joining us all the way from Perth.
2: Oh, it's been great. Thanks so much.
0: What a delight. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. All right. I have a, a kindness story to share with you. You know, we are in the midst of our Kindness Always initiative, which you have, if you haven't checked it out already, please do so at myfaithradio.com. Um, you can tell us your kindness story. We'd love to hear it. I witnessed in real time a kindness story unfold on Twitter. I know you're saying to yourself, you have got to be kidding me. Like, that's not possible. That didn't happen. Well, uh, it did happen. And there's um, there's an author who I follow. I follow a lot of people on Twitter. And she had posted, um, she just really posted what I would describe as even, she, even though she didn't articulate it this way, it was really a prayer concern for her dad. Her dad has reached the stage of life where he cannot easily get up out of his chair and move around. And so sometimes he doesn't get up out of his chair and move around because, frankly, getting up out of the chair is so hard. And so she was simply articulating that, you know, if, if God were to pro- provide the money necessary to buy this lift chair, which, you know, I think was in the neighborhood of fifteen hundred dollars. But, you know, way outside. I mean, just it wasn't it wasn't even as if she was suggesting it was possible. She was just kind of setting it out there. Well, within two hours, um, the Twitterverse had uh, contributed over over the, the amount necessary to buy the chair. I mean, like and it was And her her astonishment, delight, glee, amazement. Joy just poured forth. And I was just, as I sort of watched it unfold over the course of a couple of hours, um, I just was reminded how simple it is to jump in and bless people. So I want you today, in any way, shape, or form, um, it doesn't have to be monetary. It can be a simple thank you, a word of encouragement, uh, a lifted up prayer. Do something kind today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.